Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, so anyway, we're in episode 80-something or 90-something of the podcast, uh, uh, somewhere in there, uh, which I can never remember. But anyway, not a very new podcast anymore, but for those of you just checking us out and tuning in for the first time, basically what we do here on the podcast, uh, what this podcast is about is I... Uh, Invite on an author to discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published, something uh, on something we think you guys out there uh, would like to hear hear a discussion about. And uh, uh, at the end of the podcast, or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go out and uh, give the book, uh, buy the book yourself, and uh, give it a read. So yeah, if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today, and it's a return guest, is uh, Dr. Bruce Gilley. And uh, Dr. Gilley is professor of political science at Portland State University and a member of the board of the National Association of Scholars. And uh, he is the author of China's Democratic Future, as well as The Right to Rule, How States Win and Lose Legitimacy, and The Last Imperialist, Sir Alan Burns' Epic Defense of the British Empire, uh, for which he was previously a guest on the show, as I mentioned. And uh, lastly, he is the author of In Defense of German Colonialism and How Its Critics Empowered Nazis, Communists, and the Enemies of the West, which was published back in August by Regnery Gateway and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Gilly, thank you very, very much for uh, coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah. Hi, Tim. It's good to be back. Thanks. Uh, Yeah. So I remember when we did the previous podcast and you said you were going to have this book out and uh, on In Defense of German Colonialism. And I was like, oh, boy. Um, <laughs> <you know>. <laughs> right. <laughs> just the title itself. Makes yeah. 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 Hold on to this chair. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's not like he already didn't get enough uh, uh, hatred over that uh, and death threats and all that sort of stuff over the uh, uh, that uh, article of yours in 2017. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, just the uh, the the thought of, uh, you know, I'm sure. Uh, when people think, when when people see the words German colonialism next to each other, uh, they don't. Uh, it doesn't conjure up um, happy, Warm and fuzzy feelings. Yeah, right. So, uh, basically, what uh, what made you want to write this book? What was the genesis of it? And how did you get interested in uh, German colonialism? So, I guess it was it was a, it was a coincidence, really, because I was in I was heading to Germany for a, a conference, a, a political science conference, nothing to do with colonialism. Um, and um, I was corresponding with uh, uh, someone in the AFD party in Germany, the alternative for alternative for Deutschland, the alternative for Germany, which at that time was the, the biggest op opposition party. I think it still is actually, well, maybe not because they've had the election, but at that time it was the biggest opposition party. And, you know, of course it's, it's, it's a sort of right wing free market, uh, kind of, um, emphasizing, you know, freedoms and, and, uh, conservative values party in Germany. And, um, and this guy said to me, um, who's actually an American, but he, he's born and raised there. And he said to me, um, he said, you know, our, legislature the bundestag is going through this kind of paroxysm of of self guilt and 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 rewriting our our colonial history of course um and um and and they're just completely <laughs> 
kind of throwing everything that happened in our very brief colonial era into this kind of George Floyd panic. And well, this is before George Floyd, but Black Lives Matter is underway, anti-colonial panic. Um, and um, and would you mind coming and talking about it? Because I was working on colonialism. So I went up and I, I basically, um, because I, I had done the book on Sir Alan Burns, who, of course, when he first went to Africa, he more or less landed there on the eve of World War One. So he actually fought against German uh, colonial forces um, in West Africa in World War One. So I had some some done some work on German colonies, and um, so I said, sure, I'll come up, and I and I basically gave a a talk at the Bundestag. Of course, there were protesters outside trying to cancel the talk, um, and. Um, and that became the genesis of basically a German language book. I wrote it in English and, and this guy translated it into German. Um, and then, you know, I, I realized this was, um, you know, unlike British colonialism, you, you can buy a million books on the British Empire. There's virtually nothing on the German colonial empire, which is very brief and ended at the end of World War at the Treaty of Versailles, essentially, when they were stripped of their colonies. Um, there's nothing there's nothing that's even remotely approximating a debate on the German colonial era. Mm. Uh, it's all just evil. It's wrapped up in kind of uh, the sort of backcasting of the Nazis. And so everything that came before the Nazis must have been a prelude to the Nazis. German colonialism, of course, you know, then hits you with the, the sort of the double gut punch. It's Nazis and it's colonialism. And oh my God, it must be really, really awful. Mm. And um and so there's a niche here to just kind of do a, a defense of German colonialism and, and the amazing things they achieved and, and the legitimacy that they enjoyed and the incredible native support they enjoyed. Um, so I then took the German language book and, you know, kept expanding and dealing a little bit with some of the critiques of that. Um, and then this is the English language book. It's about twice as long. And I think um, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you one thing. There is no other book that makes a case for the German colonial era <laughs> that you will find anywhere. Um, no. And in that sense, I, I like this book because, you know, it's nice to fill a niche. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, so basically, the central thesis of the book, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, um, the, the way I understood. So basically, the termination of German colonialism uh, again, after uh, the Versailles Treaty, uh, this was a, uh, a significant contributing factor uh, to the rise of Nazism in Germany and, uh, and from there generally laid the foundation for uh, not just Nazism or National Socialism, but uh, for a series of illiberal movements, uh, including uh, communist-inspired uh, movements uh, in Germany. Yes, absolutely right. So so my argument is that um, the German colonial era was the high point of German liberalism. It was the, in some ways, the, um, the coming to fruition of Germany's amazing liberal and European heritage um, that, you know, really we forget. I mean, Germany was the center of the West. Mm -hmm. um, up until World War One, really. I mean, uh, the German German language was the language of science. Uh, German Germany led the West in, in philosophy, in music, in science and technology, um, and especially led led the world uh, in um, in knowledge of other peoples and cultures. I mean, Orientalism, you know, 
which of course Edward Said. Well, that's a bad book, word now. That's a bad word. Yeah, but but <laughs> but if you don't if you take away the pejorative connotations, I mean right. the Germans the Germans were the undisputed center of understanding of foreign languages, cultures, um, and um, geography and flora and fauna. I mean, they were they were the center of Western knowledge of the outside mm -hmm. world, without doubt. And so, the only the only thing that that you know prevented Germany from from being a colonial power is that there was no Germany until 1871. Um, yeah. And so, you know, Germany after 1871 is a very reluctant colonial power. Bismarck's not really interested, but but you know, Germany um, is taking on greater roles and responsibilities and eventually uh they end up having a very small but interesting colonial empire and you know the argument is that this was the the time when german liberalism was absolutely at the center of that country the totalitarian movements of left and right had a very small constituency um and you know i'm not the first one to say that that world war one and versailles were a disaster for the west but what has been missing from that theory, I think, has been an inclusion of the fact that one of the most toxic legacies of the Treaty of Versailles was the stripping of German colonies from Germany. Now, you can also say that, you know, reparations and disarmament and general sort of hostility to Germany that came out of World War One was part of this. But um, but the loss of colonies was singularly uh sort of doleful on German politics because, you know, that that colonial empire had in many ways been the, the glue that had held together domestic politics um, because you needed, you know, as any as anyone knows, you know, when you have major overseas responsibilities, you tend to a be more cosmopolitan and B, be less likely to bicker about domestic issues and C, there's just a lot more at stake in terms of mm -hmm. being responsible and governing well and um, and that kind of two way relationship that you saw between Britain and its colonies and France and its colonies, which in many ways, you know, nurtured liberalism because, you know, you suddenly realize there's a lot more at stake than just your petty squabbles. Well, that was removed in Germany. And so the communists and the Nazis moved in very quickly to carve up that carcass of German liberalism. And the German liberal carcass was a carcass because of what had happened at Versailles, you know, without casting blame, but let's just all agree that World War One and Versailles were a disaster for Europe. And part of that, I think, is what I'm trying to revive in the book is that that the stripping of colonies and the casting of casting out of Germany from the colonial club, you know, which had been such a an integrative force um, among the great powers of Europe, right? I mean, these these colonial leaders in, talked to each other, they cooperated, they they swapped territory even when they thought they needed to. Um, that was just lost. And mm -hmm. um, and therefore, the direct line is Germany loses its colonies and the Nazis come to power. Now, that claim is is anathema to the contemporary woke academy because they want to pretend that German colonialism was somehow a prelude to Nazism. And I show very clearly in the book quite the opposite. It was the it was the insulation against illiberalism and Nazism. And it's the loss of colonies mm -hmm. and the anti-colonial movements that set in after that in Germany that are the direct heirs, the direct uh, progenitors of the Nazi movement. Yeah. And just uh, <clears throat> backtracking, in case anybody was uh, sort of confused that, but when we say Orientalism, 
uh, we're not talking about uh, the Orient or the, the Far East, uh, the Orient, Orientalism, Occidentalism, Orient, uh, just meaning basically east of Europe, <laughs> and then the Occident me, uh, meaning, you know, Europe and and the West, uh, pretty much. So uh, when, when you use the word or the, the talk about uh, uh, German scholars of, you know, Orientalism, uh, we're not, you know, specifically talking about the uh, uh, the Far East, that uh, the Orient or Orientalism included, you know, the Middle East and, uh, uh, you know, Turkey and, uh, and all that sort of and India, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But uh, anyway, um, yeah. So, um, all right. So in your opinion, what is the, the logical argument for European colonialism? And are there, reasons to suppose German colonialism did not conform to the general pattern of European colonialism? Was there anything distinctive about Germany and its colonial approach that would have uh, rendered the benefits of colonialism and, and its legitimacy absent? I don't think so. And I think this is another area where I think... Um, I'm kind of engaging in a little bit of revisionism because, um, you know, w when I write a book about British Empire, of course, the Brits are all on side with me. And then I say, well, my next book's about the German colonial <laughs> empire. And they're, they're like, oh, the Germans were horrid, you know, and this yeah. is this kind of Germanophilia that that is still <laughs> pervasive in Britain uh, kind of rears its ugly head. And it's, you know, again, the, 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 the thankful thankful epistemological position of being a scholar in North America is you're just you're freed of those old world disputes. And, you know, mm. so when I look at German, the German colonial record, um, and it basically is there's there's four colonies in Africa, uh, which are today's Namibia, Tanzania, Cameroon and Togo. Uh, there's then uh, two colonies in the South Pacific, um, which are today multiple different islands, but it's basically Samoa and um and the uh, what they call the New Guinea colony, which is includes everything up to to uh, the Marshall Islands. And then there's a colony of Qingdao, of course, on the north coast of China. Um, and when I look at the record in these places, it's not just the record of governance, but the record of uh, outcomes. It's as good or better than any other European colonial, colonial power, including the Brits. Um, so I think this idea that the Germans were horrible colonizers was really a, a, a myth that got generated uh, at Versailles in order to justify the seizure of German colonies. Um, and much of it was um, really distasteful propaganda produced by the Foreign Office in the UK. I mean, it's a, it's a shameful chapter, actually, in British colonial history was their attempt to to uh, disparage the German colonial record. Which is particularly ironic because, you know, on the eve of World War One, I, I mean, the Brits were big fans of the German colonialists. They had them coming to London to give talks. They were studying them. There was a tremendous amount of integration and cooperation and collaboration across the British and German and French colonial empires, especially in Africa. Um, but World War One changes so much in European history. Uh, it's hard to underestimate. And one of the things it does is it creates this this fissure in European and Brit British understandings of German colonialism. And 
because that's what gets produced in English that becomes kind of embedded um, and then it gets added to in Germany in the uh, Cold War and the post-Cold War era when during the Cold War essentially the German colonial archives are stranded in the east of Germany which then takes them and cranks out Leninist Marxist Leninist critiques of German colonialism more or less taking scripts from Moscow and then post-Cold War, of course, you just have the rise of the Woke Academy and the Woke Academy takes up the communist propaganda and the British Foreign Office propaganda and mixes in a little bit of Nazi memory politics that assumes that everything that came before the Nazis must have been an evil prelude to the Nazis. Everything in German history and German culture is evil and proto-fascist. And you have this perfect storm of just um, incredibly distorted historiography on the German colonial period. I mean, it's layered under so much fabrication and distortion that, you know, just just peeling it back and just going back to facts and uh, actual data and arguments about that period um, was was the big task here. And um, and I think having done that, um, you know, German colonialism emerges as pretty typical uh, pretty typical in its benefits, pretty typical in its legitimacy, um, short-lived, but, uh, you know, having left behind an incredibly loyal native population. I mean, the, the funny thing is, is that at Versailles, you know, the natives of the former German colonies are petitioning whoever they can find to restore German rule. Um, and of course, you, it's hard to find that in the academic literature because <laughs> academics totally ignore that because they, they, they don't like it. Yeah, that's a uh, sort of off topic, but it's sort of propitious, well, maybe not the best word to use, but uh, uh, the timing, we're, we're recording this uh, the week, or I guess it's been one week or six days since uh, the passing of uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth uh, II in the United Kingdom, and there's been sort of a uh, running fight now in <laughs> online about uh, colonial <laughs> the British Empire and colonialism in general. And uh, did you see that? Uh, did you see or hear about that tweet from that? Uh, is she a professor at uh, Carnegie Mellon, uh, mm-hmm. I believe, or uh, basically she tweeted that. Uh, uh, you know that she hopes that the the queen's death. This is before that we had gotten word that the queen had actually you know passed away, uh, but you know but just that we knew that she was in uh, bad shape. Uh, she basically you know called her the uh, you know the chief monarch of a you know raping thieving uh, genocidal empire, and that she hopes that her death is. Or, you know, is painful and excruciating, or something like that, and uh, um, it's, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, it's uh, sort of amazing the uh, the the temperature <laughs> that uh, <coughs> colonialism or anti-colonialism or the uh, you know the, the the arguments over it sort of uh, bring things to you know. And, yeah, I have this I have this idea of like the uh, the uh, chip on the shoulder anti-colonial olympics like which country is kind of in the gold medal table and it's it's almost always the south asians um i don't know any part of the world i mean i guess, I guess you know, the middle easterners were probably 
compete, um, especially the Iranians, which is kind of funny because they were never colonized, but mm-hmm. um, they, but they all have a big anti-colonial chip on the shoulder, and every single bad thing that ever happened to their countries, you know, was somehow, you know, into you know, fomented in the Foreign Office and mm-hmm. later on the CIA, this kind of paranoid conspiracy theories, and then. Uh, and this woman at Carnegie Mellon, I think she's Bangladeshi, you know, so the Bangladeshis are actually competing a little bit with the with the Indians these days. India's just bigger, exports more of these type of people to the West than any other part. And I, I actually in this book on German colonialism, you know, I cite some of the, the crazy South Asian intellectuals who are trying to deal, deal with. Yeah. Well, not, not just that, but the scholars today who mm. are doing the post-colonial research on German colonialism and, you know, all their... All their their precious esoteric language about othering and erotics of resistance and whatnot and um, and uh, expropriating black and brown bodies and whatnot. Um, I mean, it's kind of I, I don't think you even take it seriously anymore. I don't I don't know anyone who takes it seriously anymore. I mean, there uh, this is this is long past the point of um, historical research that allows people to cite facts in a scientific manner and make scientific arguments. I mean, it's long since past that. It's become woke, you know, in the way that I think James Lindsay uses the term, it's, it's become reified. It's a reified postmodernism. Mm. So so once something becomes reified as just a, a truth, a reality that is not, is kind of beyond debate, mm. uh, because debate itself is, of course, the colonial violence that we're trying to get away from, then I mean, what what can you do in response to these kind of claims except shrug your shoulders and say whatever? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just I don't even think it bears a bears a response. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, back to the Germans uh, <laughs> specifically. So you mentioned uh, you know earlier that uh, um, you know the formation of the of the German nation or the the German Empire, the you know, the Kaiserreich, the Second Empire. Um, Bismarck, Otto von Bismarck, who is uh, chancellor, uh, uh, he's uh, generally uninterested in colonialism, but uh, events sort of overtake him. <laughs> and uh, but uh, but the most enthusiastic constituency for colonialism, uh, you read at the time, is not uh, um, not the conservatives, not the uh, uh, monarchists or anything like that. It was the the socialists, the socialist party. Why uh, why were the uh, socialists uh, so gung ho uh, for colonialism at the time? Yeah, it's interesting. And just like as a footnote, of course, um, Germany completely invalidates Edward Said's orientalist orientalism theory that says you know the more the more knowledge you accumulate about about peoples east of Europe, the more likely you are to colonize them. And, and so yeah. what do you do with the German case? Because it is basically the, the the case that invalidates your entire theory. And it's not just a small place. It is the center of Oriental knowledge. And the Orientalists had not had any influence in conservative circles in encouraging colonialism. There was no interest at all. It also invalidates the Leninist argument that colonialism was a way for growing capitalists to seek profits as profits were declining at home. Again, Germany was the second biggest economy in Europe at the time, and there was zero interest in overseas colonies among the German business sector. Um, they, they liked trading in the uh, 
English and French colonies and then also in Latin America and the United States. So um, so where was the pressure coming from? Well, partly it was just coming from from diplomatic um, pressures on the Germans because, you know, as a great power, they were expected to have something to say about colonial affairs. And this is kind of what great powers did. And uh, and there were German uh, traders and coal stations and, uh, you know, little settlement communities dotted around the, the, around Africa and in, uh, in the South Pacific. And at a certain point at the diplomatic level, the great powers are saying, look, you know, we're, we're not, we're not, uh, we want to bring you into the colonial club. So why don't you guys take responsibility for this area, will be responsible for this area. I mean, that's essentially what came out of the Berlin Conference of 1884-5 was a kind of, a kind of look, we need to set some standards for, for good colonialism. And, you know, Germany, you are a big power now, you need to take your fair share of this burden. Um, and then on the home front, in terms of the, the drive, as you say, to the extent that there was a kind of a, a zeal coming out of the domestic front. It was a zeal from the sort of left, not from the right. It was a zeal from the socialists, the social democrats, who, like Marx, believed that colonialism was a very positive force for human development. Um, Marx viewed colonialism as a useful step to um, bring societies out of feudal relationships um, based on dependence on individuals and being tied to particular pieces of land to create more civic institutions where people were freed from the shackles of, of feudal relationships and were introduced into a capitalist form of relationship that was um, more um, non-personal based, based on your access to labor, your access to institutions as an equal. I mean, Marx, of course, then believed this would move on to socialism and eventually communism. But, you know, the socialists at the time were were seeing colonialism the way many socialists did, which is as basically a humanitarian and developmental project. This was kind of foreign aid uh, before we started using the term foreign aid. So um, Bismarck was able to kind of bring together a very strong centrist coalition of the center-left social democrats and the center-right conservative nationalists to say, we may differ on domestic politics, but we both have a sort of shared agreement that as a, as a country, we should do our part for colonialism, right? I mean, colonialism is seen as a, as a kind of, a, as, a, as, a, as a form of, of foreign aid, as I say. And, um, and that's how it got going in Germany, um, quite, kind of reluctantly and unintentionally. And again, that's why the German case is so interesting because it doesn't have any of that uh, sort of uh, we'll rule the seas and and, and uh, there's there's copper to be developed that we need to, to get. Um, I mean, the Germans kind of got pulled into this, um, but they got pulled into it in a, in a way that reflected their deep liberal centrist politics. Right. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, just a minute ago the, the, the spirit of Berlin Conference. Uh, uh, talk a little bit about uh, the importance of that and the, the, the principles embodied uh, in that conference. Uh, you know, what what the, what was expected of of colonial uh, powers going forward after that conference? 
Yeah, so the Berlin Conference of 1884-5 was convened by Bismarck. And partly it was convened by Bismarck because Germany was not yet a colonial power. So it was kind of, a, you know, <clears throat> neutral ground for France and Britain and to some extent Belgium, uh, Portugal, the Dutch, of course. Um, and then the United States was there. Russia was there. Several smaller European countries. And... It was really that the immediate kind of coming together was uh, basically to set some rules for free trade, you know, to make sure that colonialism didn't cause uh, Africa um, and West Africa in particular to um, devolve into sort of trading blocks because they all understood that they were all better off with with free trade. This is the you know, high point of European liberalism. Um, and then as they're as they're sort of discussing these rules, they sort of end up talking more about some more basic questions. I mean, this is the time when European societies themselves are are in full liberal mode. I mean, the, the expansion of the franchise, the provision of uh, basic rights, um, expanded access to um, legal processes. I mean, um, freedoms and, and press laws and whatnot are, are being rolled out. And so, so they end up adding two you know, what end up being really the central principles that come out of this conference, there are, there are some specific agreements on, you know, trade in the Congo and uh, trade in West Africa. But but the main principles that come out, the enduring aspects of the Berlin Conference are, first of all, that the first responsibility of a colonial power is to improve the well-being of the native populations. Now, we can say that, there, that that was there implicitly for a long time, but this is the first time this is made explicit in an international treaty is, you know, if you're not improving the livelihoods of the natives, then you have some ways failed as a colonial power. That's one. The second is that if you go and stake a claim in an area or say we, we'd like to consider this our territory, um, it's not enough to just stake a claim and, and you know, run up the flag you need to actually establish governance you need to effectively occupy it was the term that was used um and again the reason for that is so that so that uh, colonialism is not just staking claims and and carving up africa as is often mythologized about the africa about the berlin conference but is actually setting up the institutions of governance um and those are very powerful principles because in a uh in a liberalizing europe um with oppositions and civil society and free press, um, once you commit yourself to those principles, you can be sure that uh, accountability mechanisms will force you to realize them. And so Germany begins its colonial era at a time when the kind of ethical basis of European colonialism is stronger than it's ever been. Okay. All right. So uh, I guess let's Let's take a little tour, I guess, through this uh, this German overseas empire. Um, talk a little bit about some of, uh, each of these colonies, and uh, let's start with uh, German Southwest Africa, that, that colony, which is, is uh, today is Namibia. Um, this is probably, uh, or easily, probably the area where the Germans get the most uh, grief over there. Uh, colonial project uh, due to the um, due to the Herrera Wars and uh, you know what uh, uh, many uh, scholars um, consider to be 
a, uh, a genocide by uh, the uh, committed by the German uh, armed forces against the Herero and uh, Nama uh, people. So um, tell us a little bit about this colony and uh, what actually <laughs> what actually happened there. Yeah, so German Southwest Africa is actually one of the, the first places where they actually establish a colony. It's a little strip of land um, uh, created by a failed tobacco merchant from Bremen <laughs> who, who then kind of um, establishes a foothold and um, and then German settlers start moving there in the sort of 18, they had started moving in the 1870s, but 1884, 85, it gets created and the settlers are moving in. And, um, you know, this is a, this is a very, uh, very rough, uh, meaning uh, geographically um, very difficult area, mainly deserts, um, large, um, undeveloped tracts of, of desert and savanna area, some mountainous areas. Yeah, it's in the right north. north of South Africa, uh, right, and to the you know to on the on the west coast, right up on the west coast, yeah. right. And um and and Germany is does you know what the Germans do best? I mean they they establish essentially a um a, a successful governance system. Um, they build a railway from the uh, coastal area into Windhoek, which is the uh, the capital. Um and you know they they're trying to sort of figure out how do you take this essentially pastoralist raiding culture um, in the heart of the country. Um, and the Herero and the Nama groups are essentially uh, pastoralists whose whose main whose main occupation is raiding one another, um, stealing their cattle and engaging in fights. And of course, the, one of the first things the Germans see when they arrive there is this, is this epic battle between the Nama and the Herero. Um, and, you know, the, the Nama leader has a missing thumb because he loses it in one of these battles and the Germans keep trying to sort of keep these two sides apart. Well, you know, what the Germans do is just say, look, let's 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 change our ways. Let's let's create an economy where you can you can be a farmer or you can work on the railways or we can develop some of these minerals. I mean, just doing what the colonial enterprise does best. And this all works pretty well um, until uh, the Herero cattle herds get wiped out in the 1890s by a, by a Rinderpest epidemic. And it's, um, you know, by the time the Germans figure out a cure for this, essentially the cattle herds have been lost. Um, so, the Herreros become more dependent on German farms and farmers. Um, you know, there's tensions, but the tensions are being managed. And at a certain point, the Herrero, uh, probably because the Herrero leader was losing his grip on, on the community, um, rise up and massacre a whole bunch of German farmers. And the Germans then essentially institute a counterinsurgency campaign against the Herrero. Now, before we talk about what happened in that counterinsurgency campaign, let's ask about just the results, because much of the mythology of the genocide is, you know, the measured population of the Herero was 70,000 before the counterinsurgency campaign, and then it fell to, you know, 20,000 or 30,000 or something. Well, we now know that essentially that difference has nothing to do with deaths, but is everything to do with very different census capacities and estimates before and after the counterinsurgency campaign, migration of people away, and some small decline in fertility rates. So, you know, the we always have to start with like the fact, right? There was no genocide because there is no evidence of a large significant decline of population of the Herero 
nor of the nama, right? And there's lots of ways of getting at this. One of them, of course, is just to look at the, the measured populations of groups who were nowhere near the counterinsurgency, whose measured populations also declined by roughly the same proportion. Um, so, so we can't, we don't need to, to, to deny that there was a genocidal uh, activity carried out by the Germans because there's no genocide. There's no evidence of a decline in population like that. Now, there was a counterinsurgency campaign, and there were a lot of Herrero and Nama killed in that, as there were a lot of Germans killed in that. But, but it was, I mean, it was in desert conditions. It was, um, it was, there was hardly any fighting, right? Most of the time, they were just kind of dug in and, and dying of thirst. Um, and eventually, because the Germans could not get the Herero to surrender, the German commander, Lothar von Trotha, said, after having given many amnesties, many attempts to, to, um, to have them turned and sent into POW camps, but, but they were waging a guerrilla warfare from, from the periphery. And so finally, Lothar von Trotha, the Germans said, leave. You, you must leave the colony, right? And, and, if we, and if we find you, we'll shoot you. Right. So it's basically an expulsion order. And he said that knowing that there was already a well-trodden migration route to neighboring what's now Botswana, as that time was Bachuchaland, uh, where the where the Herero had settled um, at the invitation of the local chief. And so he was basically saying, you have an access place, go there because we're tired of, of, of this, this nuisance insurgency. And if you don't, you'll be shot on sight. Men, men will be shot on sight, right? So an expulsion order. And by that time, most of them have already left anyways. Um, now that counterinsurgency has been worked up by the Woke Academy for about 30 years into somehow the prelude to the Holocaust. <laughs> and it, the intellectual gymnastics are, are epic, but the fact the, is the continuity thesis, right? The continuity thesis that was, um, I mean, yeah, Hannah Arendt made a, made an argument that German colonial officialdom, you know, became Nazi colonial officialdom, which it didn't. Uh, there's maybe a few people who were old enough to have served both. Um, and then along comes Jürgen Zimmerer, who takes the Arendt thesis and says, not only German colonial rule led to Nazi rule, but German genocide led, led to Nazi genocide. So this is the so-called Windock to Auschwitz thesis. And of course, the first problem with it is there was no genocide in Southwest Africa. So this is a effect searching for a cause. Um, the more fundamental thing is that the German colonialism was everything that the Nazis were not. Uh, it was liberal, it was well-governed, it was based on an expansion of rights, um, and it takes just partly just incredible intellectual gymnastics to try and make that argument. But I think it also just takes this sort of a lack of debate. Uh, nobody has dared to take on the woke German scholars who want to attribute everything they dislike in the German past, uh, as, uh, say that it's a sort of prelude to the Nazis. And once you talk Nazis and Holocaust with German history, the conversation shuts down, right? It is the most, it is the most noxious form of Holocaust trivialization when these scholars invoke that sacred memory for their woke crusades against the German past. And and I, you know, what I do in this book is I call it out, and I call it out for what it is. Yeah, uh, but so the Germany 
or you know the German Federal Republic, uh, you know, the the German the the reunified Germany that's been in place since uh, you know 1990 or 91, whatever. Uh, they recognize or uh, this these actions as uh, genocidal, as as does the United Nations. So uh, why uh, why if if not a genocide, why is there uh, so much willingness to believe it, it was one? I think kind of the the way we started this conversation, German colonialism, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it is just, I mean, again, and I, I will go to the floor with anyone on the facts on this one, but it is very clear that there is no significant population decline for the Herero that is any different from the same population declines experienced by, for example, the, the, um, the uh, the the Rehoboth Basters, the Berg Damara, the other groups, right, that are experiencing this. That's one thing. Secondly, um, you know, there there is kind of sometimes it's important to get the moral compass right. Is that the, the Herero have been seen as kind of virtuous, noble resistors to evil German colonialists. Um, so they weren't. The Herero and the Herero leader Samuel Maharero were bad. They were the bad guys. They were the bad guys here because. Whatever mistakes we can say about German policies with with land settlement and um, railway building and wage rates and whatnot, okay, these were not of the sort of mistakes that justified a violent insurgency to overthrow German colonial rule. The German counterinsurgency campaign was the good guys here. So partly it's just, you know, once if you disagree on the moral compass at the mm -hmm. start, then then everything the Germans did was was violent and illegitimate, right? Um, and then nobody likes to question the numbers because it's very convenient to take the high estimates of population before and the lowest estimates of population later and somehow ignore all the facts of census capacity, migration, fertility rates, and say, oh, this must have been Lothar von Trotha murdering millions of or tens of thousands of, of Herrera. I mean, there's just, uh, I, yeah. When the United Nations says something is true, or even the federal government in Germany says something is true now in a, in a center-left coalition, of course, uh, it, it doesn't resonate with me. I don't find those to be institutions that are commonly associated with truth about the German past. Okay. All right. Uh, so let's uh, head on east a little bit to uh, German East Africa. Uh, that colony, which eventually becomes uh, Tanzania, and then parts of it, uh, uh, parts of it become uh, parts of uh, Rwanda, uh, Burundi, Kenya, and a uh, you know, little little bit of Mozambique. Uh, but this is the colony you said we should pay the most attention to. Uh, why so? Just its population was essentially the. You know, 50% of the German colonial population in total. So this is obviously where we should measure it. I mean, again, I, so it's important to say, you know, we're not saying that uh, just because there were, you know, not many people murdered by the genocidals in the Southwest Africa, it doesn't matter. No, it's if, mm -hmm. if, if there was a genocide in Southwest Africa, no matter how few people or compared to the Tanzanian population died, it would still be a, a major factor, uh, perhaps um, leading us to reject the 
ethical basis of German colonialism altogether. But as I say, it, there wasn't, right? So then we're left with just comparative populations and what was achieved in these different population areas. Tanzania, what was then called German East Africa, was um, half the German colonial experience. And uh, there's little bits in West Africa. There's German Togo and German Cameroon. They're just essentially small trading colonies, both of them perfectly well run, even miraculous in some ways. But really, German East Africa is, is the big one. And what's important here, of course, is the Germans take over an area that even the British would not touch because it is dominated by Arab Afro slave traders and slave networks that operate from Dar es Salaam or the um, other coastal areas into the Congo interior, right? This is the heart of the slaving empires of East Africa. This is also, by the way, why nobody wanted to colonize the Congo because um, these Afro-Arab slave trading networks were vicious and well-armed and powerful. And uh, if you were going to create a colony here and live up to the principles of the Berlin Conference, you're going to have to do a lot of fighting against slaving empires. And the Germans did it. Um, and they, they brought peace to the area. They emancipated millions of slaves. They brought an end to feuds in the hillsides of Kilimanjaro. They built two epic railways, which continue to be the mainstay of the Tanzanian economy. Um, and they also uh, introduced Swahili as a lingua franca of the area from a coastal language. They created, they documented Swahili, they created grammar books, they introduced training in Swahili. Uh, German government in East Africa was in Swahili. I mean, they literally created this as a nation. And, uh, and it was a tremendous success. And not surprisingly, when World War I comes, the German East African native troops uh, fight heart and soul for German rule. Uh, I mean, so hard that, in fact, most of them were not paid because the Germans had no money. They were giving them IOUs and uh, they don't even lay down arms until they get word that there's actually a treaty, even, you know, armistice signed in Europe. I mean, they were going right to the end. Um, nice little anecdote I learned this year is that uh, in 1953, one of the last commanders of the German East Africa campaign from 1919 went back to Tanzania and redeemed all of those IOUs. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Those old soldiers who had kept those IOUs, uh, you know, for 40 years, he goes back in the 50s and redeems them all. It's kind of a nice little German story, but um, indicative of basically the success and legitimacy of German rule in what's now Tanzania. Mm. Okay. Uh, and then headed back west again uh, to uh, Cameroon and the colony of uh, Togoland, which eventually just becomes Togo. Uh, Togoland was considered uh, uh, a model colony. Uh, the uh, Tuskegee Institute, uh, that's the, you know, the American <laughs> Tuskegee Institute, uh, actually had an experimental cotton farm and an agricultural school there. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, Tojo, or excuse me, Tojo, <laughs> uh, Togo, uh, and um, uh, why was that considered a model colony? In part because the German view was um, we're really just going to make this a free trade zone. I mean, this is almost like a little Hong Kong in West Africa. They they have uh, free trade. They um, I mean, it's essentially a colony built on either side of a river. So um, you know the challenge in Togo and Cameroon is to basically drive a railway uh, from the coast 
up to the south, uh, up to the northern mountains. And this is essentially, um, you know, incredibly difficult, like on a per mile basis, the cost of doing this is is very high because they're going through mountain after mountain after mountain. And um, but they do it in Togo and um, they enjoy a tremendous amount of of. Uh, legitimacy the natives are getting wealthy um it's a it's a self-supporting colony self-supporting colony, yeah along with with Qingdao, it's the only one that doesn't require uh subsidies from berlin and um and i think it's a model colony also because you know to the extent that one of the aspects of the berlin conference was free trade i mean most of the trade in and out of this colony is not the germans it's the british and the french um and so it's a model not just in terms of its internal governance but it's also a model in terms of its uh you know, the, the sort of to the extent that colonialism was creating rivalries. Um, and, you know, of course, people have made arguments that colonial rivalries led to World War One. I, I don't think that thesis is valid. But certainly Togo was an instance where colonialism was really drawing the, col- the colonial powers closer together because um, they were all benefiting from Togo. Mm. Yeah. And when Togo eventually achieves uh, independence, uh, late fifties, early sixties. I'm not, I can't, I'm not too sure on the date. They, uh, actually invite the, uh, last German governor of the, of the colony to, uh, participate in the, uh, on the, in the independence celebrations. Is that right? Yeah. And, and, and Togo chiefs still parade around in, uh, Bismarck era, German military helmets. <laughs> Oh, wow. With the kind with the, the pickle group or the shickle group yes, or whatever it is. Yes. Yeah. Yep. With, yep. With the yeah. Kaiser's emblem on it. Yes. Oh boy. Um, yeah. And uh, speaking of military fancy Prussian uniforms, um, there's really in all these colonies there's uh, a scant uh, military presence. Uh, you know the the German army. Uh, there's not many Germans on the ground. Uh, you know either. Uh, in defense of these colonies or uh, administrating these colonies. Right. Uh, and so, you know, you have to look at, you know, number of um, troops or police compared to population, um, compared to other colonial areas. areas. But uh, yes, a very thin presence. I mean, of course, the problem in a lot of African colonies is that people didn't even know they were part of a colony because they never saw a white man. I mean, all the, all mm-hmm. the governance was carried out by natives. And Germany in particular, you know, the problem was they, you know, they didn't even have a national anthem at the time. So sometimes they would run up the German flag and they would sing, you know, German words to God save the queen or something because they, they didn't even have a, a, a national anthem. I mean, this is how this is how minimalist these colonies were run. Um, but life got better. Um, civil war declined. Um, raiding and. Uh, subjugation by the local native neighbor ended uh, and people may not have known why things were getting better, but things were getting better. And the, and these places were stable and prosperous and they developed the, the cotton economy of, of Togo, which remains the backbone of Togolese exports to this day. Um, and yeah, the Tuskegee, Tuskegee Institute was there uh, doing a model farm Um and so uh, as there, as in, in the Cameroons, um, you know, they essentially are having this little slice of West Africa and, you know, West African economies are, are, are more mercantile to start with. So it's, it's not like the Germans invented the trading tradition in West Africa. It is, it is the heart of 
of the African trading culture, but uh, but they certainly latch onto it very effectively and create viable countries out of what are at that time very very divided countries. And uh, talk a little bit about all the the uh, health advancements that uh, were brought to these colonies by uh, by German scientists by German doctors. Yeah, the Germans, of course, you know, as as in all spheres, are are you know leading in medical research in the 19th century. There's there's no doubt about it. So the, you know, you can go through lots of examples. They find the the solution to Rinderpest. Uh, they find the solution to to typhoid, or they identify the problem. They start research on malaria, at least on uh, prophylactics to malaria. And then, of course, the big one that starts sweeping Africa in the German time there is sleeping sickness, which is um, vicious. I mean, it has mortality rates of 80 to 90 percent for those who get affected with it. And the Germans begin this kind of collaborative um, sleeping sickness research actually convened by the Belgian king, Leopold, because it's also ravaging his Congo Free State. But there's a, a kind of multinational sleeping sickness commission, international sleeping sickness commission. The Germans take a leading role in that simply because they have the most advanced scientific research on tropical diseases. Uh, Robert Cook, who is, uh, of course, uh, the person who is um, most associated with tropical disease research, um uh, essentially discovers the, the kind of key insight to sleeping sickness, which is that it's spread by a certain type of fly, that it's a blood-based disease, that, uh, you know, how it operates and develops the whole idea of chemotherapy to uh, to deal with it before he dies in 1911. And then, you know, that German solution basically comes out in the lab um, in uh, during World War One, just after World War One, and uh, the French reverse engineer it and steal it, but um, but the point is, it does become uh, a cure for sleeping sickness. And uh, I mean, this is a disease that was killing hundreds of thousands of people in Africa at the time. And you know, the German cure—it's hard to guess how many lives it saved, but certainly in the millions. Mm -hmm. Okay, and. Uh... God, we're already running out of time, but uh, let's just briefly uh, move over to the uh, Pacific. As you mentioned, uh, the Germans had a uh, colony in uh, German Samoa and then German New Guinea, but they're sort of uh, sorry, inconsequential, uh, for lack of a better word. But uh, certainly, in population terms, yeah. they're inconsequential. Although they're although they're fascinating because they're because they are so isolated and whatnot. But um, Population-wise, inconsequential, and um, and I think um, not much. I mean, in some ways, the reason we don't know much about them is because they were basically successful, and, <laughs> and as you'd expect. Yeah, uh, but uh, but uh, Qingdao, the uh, their Chinese uh, uh, colony, uh, which uh, at the time looked like it was going to be. Uh, another uh you know a german version of hong kong uh but uh, uh you know uh, during the war is uh taken uh, the first world war uh, the great war is is taken by the uh japanese who uh also <laughs> uh take the other uh german possessions in the pacific um and then but, take the rest of china yeah, yeah pretty much yeah yeah, yeah exactly this is, the, this is the tragedy of the tra is. right yeah yeah so talk a little bit about that yeah, well, it was, it was a very successful colony, um, mainly, as with Hong Kong, was mainly colonized by the Chinese. I mean, there weren't, there weren't that many people there when the Germans arrived, as there weren't many people in Hong Kong when the 
British arrived, and then once they established this successful European city, the Chinese start start rushing on mass to live, you know, live under colonialism to be oppressed by evil white colonialists. Um, of course, it's a joke. It was life was much better, and um, and and Sun Yat-sen, the first president of China, is lavish in his praise of German colonialism in Qingdao. And he said, "I want every local official in China to come here." And study what the Germans have done, because this is a model for China. This is what we need to be doing. And um, so the tragedy of Qingdao is, yes, as you say, that the, the, the British essentially ceded tactical uh, role to the Japanese in World War One. And once the Japanese get a taste of conquest in China, um, you know, the rest is history, leading all the way up to Marco Polo Bridge and invasion of Manchuria. So that's a that is a great tragedy in many ways. I mean, one can make an argument that this is a big contributing factor to the rise of the Communist Party. Um, so a little interesting, like fork in the road in history. The rise of the had, Communist Party in China. In China, right, 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 because the communists were very much came to power in this sort of anger about German, about Japanese territorial incursions uh, mm. that started at Qingdao. Right. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Do you have time to go a little, little long? I got a, there's just a couple more uh, questions. Sure. All right. All right. Yeah. Um, I'll try to be brief though. So really wanted to uh, talk about the second part of your book. Like I said, the first uh, part really is this tour of the, uh, you know, the German uh, colonial possessions. And the second is uh, sort of on the aftermath of, uh, you know, what happens after uh, these possessions are, uh, are taken from Germany at Versailles. But um Again, we talked about how it's a, a rise, uh, it's a factor in the rise of uh, national socialism. Uh, but why were the uh, why were the Nazis, uh, you know, Hitler in particular, um, anti-colonial at least uh, in uh, at least in an overseas uh, anti-colonial empire? They weren't uh, 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 very fond of it. Uh, why so? Uh, because they were racists. Um, and uh, anti-colonialists are racists. I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, Hitler hated colonialism because colonialism involved uh, Germans mixing with non-white peoples. He hated colonialism because it involved Germany learning from and having productive conversations and interactions with non-white peoples. Uh, He hated colonialism because he thought black people were inferior and, uh, and, and could never be governed because they were stupid like poodles, he said. Um, And he hated colonialism because the Jews were so central to the German colonial project. The two last colonial secretaries in Germany were both Jewish. Um, German tropical medical research had a very prominent role for the Jews. Um, The Jewish traders, uh, you know, just up and down the the scale you can see it. So, so colonialism was everything that fascism and Nazism were not. It was liberal. It was anti-racist. It was cosmopolitan. It was based on the idea of a free society. It was based on on interchanges across nations. Um, and and that was everything the Nazis were not. So, part of Hitler's kind of pitch to the German people was: you see how terrible that cosmopolitan German colonial project treated us. You see how we were cast out of Europe by getting in bed with Western European culture. Well, we're going to end the colonialism of the Versailles Treaty, and we're going to end the colonialism of the colonial lobby, and we're going to reconfigure ourselves as a purely Germanic, purely Aryan, 
and purely Europe, kind of Central Europe, territorial-based state. Um, and frankly, he was talking many similar talking points as the communists, uh, who were saying very similar things out of Moscow and out of Moscow's kind of front organizations in Berlin at the time, as colonialism is full of Jews and free marketers and cosmopolitans, and, and that's that's not suitable. We need a revolutionary society that's uh, controlled by the state and and serves the national purpose. So, you know, there's a clear mm. opposition between fascism and colonialism. They were there. You can't imagine two more diametrically different doctrines. Yeah. And uh, speaking of the fascists, um, going a little bit into the, we talked about this uh, briefly earlier, but uh, really the, the, the fascist origins of the of the uh, of the 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 post-war anti-colonial, the post-World War II uh, anti-colonial project. Yeah. So, of course, um, you know, during World War II, the, the anti-colonialists in the colonies, like, um, you know, Gamal Nasser and uh, the Mufti of Jerusalem, the Palestinians, the Indonesians, the, the Burmese, um, the Algerians, I mean, they, they, they rush to Berlin to learn from Hitler because Hitler talks their language. I mean, they, they love Hitler. Hitler. Hitler talks about hatred for the West, hatred for liberal civilization. Of course, the most prominent guests are the, are the Congress Party from India. And um, uh, because, again, uh, Hitler talks their talk down with the British, down with Western civilization, down with liberalism, up with ethno chauvinism and particular national forms of governance that may involve purging your historic enemies. So that was, <laughs> they loved him. So not surprisingly, post-war anti-colonialism continues to draw very heavily on this essentially fascist starting point. Um, and I would just say, read Franz Fanon, whose book, The Wretched of the Earth, becomes a sort of Bible of the anti-colonialists and is still taught in universities throughout America as some virtuous piece of progressive advocacy, but it's essentially a fascist doctrine. It's a fascist document. It, it argues uh, for violence. It argues against liberal society. Um, it praises the Germans for how they solved their Versailles problem and says all colonial powers should solve their Versailles problem similarly. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of dirty little heart of the secret that eventually I try and bring out of this book is that the contemporary decolonized agenda is essentially fascist. And then there are the uh, uh, the communist ties to this anti-colonial movement as well, as we, again, briefly uh, talked about earlier. But uh, the, the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, uh, East Germany, uh, during the Cold War, becomes sort of the, the main uh, or the, sort of the, the Johnny Appleseed of this uh, of this uh, this uh, German anti-colonialism. Yes. Interestingly, I mean, partly. It's a bit of a fluke, like I say, that the archives are stranded in, um, uh, well, they're, they're captured by the Germans, uh, by, sorry, by the Russians um, in Berlin, uh, because the, the Russian sphere has the documents. They, the Russians send them back to Moscow, then they send them to Potsdam after the, after the war in East Germany, and, and basically they tell their Leninist scholars to start cranking out Leninist critiques of German colonialism, which then become the sort of foundation of German historiography on colonialism, um, even though the, the, the scholars who wrote them, you know, later repudiate them and say, oh, we were just laboring under this ideological 
doctrine. But um, but yes, the, you know the, the 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 communists in East Germany not only kind of cranking out critiques of German colonialism, but then you know carrying out a really noxious form of German colonialism in terms of um, revolutionary communist-inspired governments in places like Yemen. Uh, that bring terrible suffering to those places. And um, I mean, this is really, you know, if, if you want to talk about German colonialism that was really evil, it's East German colonialism in places like Yemen that, that truly have noxious effects. Um, and again, you know, talking about the sort of linking that through to the post-war period, this is the time when the Soviet Union is styling itself as a great liberating force for colonized peoples everywhere and wouldn't you like to have the sort of democracy that we have in Russia? None of this Western liberalism nonsense anymore. Mm -hmm. Going to have revolutionary democracy and people's democracy and whatnot. Um, but, you know, you, you think this is a joke, but this is the talk that the Contemporary Academy continues to use when it's describing German colonialism. And uh, there's just a lack of lessons learned, it seems. Yeah. Do you think how much of this... Uh, uh, this stuff from German, uh, from the German Academy, do you think is really, um, or how much effect do you think that Holocaust guilt and just sort of uh, guilt over Germany's role um, uh, and its actions in the Second World War has an effect or a chilling effect on? Uh, real scholarship in Germany because of the, just the sort of the perceived or the fear of being perceived, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. As, the, as essentially a neo-Nazi because yeah, as, yeah. As, I, as I talk about in the book, you know, one of the, one of the ways that the contemporary ac academics have tried to sort of smear German colonialism is again, to sort of backcast everything that the German colonialists did as kind of Freudian Nazi slips, you know? So I talk about, uh, I talk about this great wildlife photographer in 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 German East Africa who who was the first to pioneer the use of aerial uh, filming techniques um, from airplanes, and this is how they mapped what became you know the great Serengeti and nature reserves of, of Tanzania, which kind of single-handedly preserved the flora and fauna of that region. But but now this is filming out of the back of an airplane. Well, this is a lot like the bombardier gaze of a Nazi mm. bomber, you see, and. And when a, another colonial official says, I think we should expand our set of uh, of governance posts into that area. Well, that's a, a little bit of Lebensrand going on there. Right. So it is this kind of uh, absolutely it's just it's this kind of. And once you say that, you totally have shut down the conversation because people are afraid of trying to defend something which seems like Nazism. But it's really important to turn the tables here because who's the fascist here? Mm. Who's the Nazi? Who's the Holocaust minimizer and trivializer? It's the woke academy, right? It's the people who instead of treating the Holocaust and the Nazis as the evil they are and recognizing them, in particular the Holocaust, as a unique evil in Western history, are trying to attach that emotional baggage to anything they don't like, climate change, United Nations reform, plastic bags, and even the historiography of a counterinsurgency campaign in Southwest Africa. So that to me is really what's offensive. That's to me is mm -hmm. what should be called out as problematic thinking, you know, if we yeah. want to use that term. 
And um, but it's it's going to take a long time because basically German scholars have managed to single-handedly purify their 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 ranks of any dissenting voices on this issue. And young scholars live in 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 just perpetual fear of falling afoul of these ogres of the senior colonial establishment in German history today. Yeah, I mean, I I understand it in a way because I mean I'm <laughs> you know. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if it's just that I've been conditioned by you know, movies and whatnot, but like, just I don't I don't know how this is. It's probably true for a lot of uh, people or Americans or, um, or Americans at least, but like, just the sound of the German language makes me think <laughs> of Nazis, you know, and and yes. it's a shame uh, because. I mean, there's just so much, uh, I mean, the German culture has added so much to, uh, our, uh, our ease of life in the West and, uh, you know, and into our, and into the fine arts and, you know, uh, through music and, and opera and, uh, just, uh, uh, you know, and literature and everything. Um, but I mean, I find myself guilty of, even if I'm reading a book, on like say 19th century Germany or 18th century Germany or something like that like or something will pop up and the slightest teeniest teeniest or just like anti-semitism or something like that like someone will say something like derogatory some German will say something derogatory about Jews and I'm like oh you know like this is you know what I mean and um, uh, I don't know how I mean granted the the Holocaust uh, obviously the worst thing any country uh you know in the history of the world has ever conceived and you know put into practice um but you know which is and i don't uh, and i've always wondered how germans uh today you know people who have no knowledge or, or no recollection of world war ii i mean that whole generation that lived then is you know it's we're coming to an end of uh, the people who, uh, you know, in another 20 years or so, there's not going to be very many people left who have any sort of remembrance of that, of that period. Um, how, you know, how do they deal with that, that, well, I think that's, that that's stain point. and, yeah. you know, I don't know. It's so, the, the, um, well, the point is to start rescuing German history from the Nazi era. And the problem is, is that, this kind of guilt politics and memory politics that has has kind of gripped Germany since World War II has tended to cast a much wider net than it ever should have. And of course, we you know people have been saying this, but but politically, it's been very powerful to use memory politics and guilt politics to advance a certain progressive agenda. Sure. And uh, and it's a disservice. It's a disservice to German history. It's a disservice to the people who worked faithfully for a German liberalism um, and who fought against the Nazis. And it's a, and it's a disservice to, you know, the contemporary understanding of what a free society is. I think that, um, well, you know, there must have been something in the German colonial past. No, there wasn't actually, you know, and uh, countries, democracies can collapse from pressures of the left or the right. Uh, at any time. And uh, you can be the most advanced and civilized place in the world. And it doesn't mean that this can't 
that these kind of threats can't come at you from either left or right. So, I mean, that's that I think is the lesson here and yeah. um, bad decisions leading to bad outcomes here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and for the record, I uh, love the German people. I've spent time in Germany. It's a very nice place. <laughs> the people. Yes. Are very nice. So <laughs> anyway. All right. So uh, I've kept you long enough. So again, last question. Uh, same question I asked you at the end of the, the last time you were here. Um, you know, what would you like the audience to get out of this book? You know, what's the what's the what's the one thing you'd want uh, someone to take away from reading it? Well, I, th I think it's 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 to that point, right? Okay. It's, it's time it's time to start rescuing the idea of Germany, the sound of the German language, <laughs> the idea of German history from this singular focus on the Nazis and the Holocaust, um, because actually it it tends to trivialize the Nazis and the Holocaust when we do that, right? So it's 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 not to minimize it. In fact, it's to maximize it. Just to say, recognize the distinction between what happened in the Nazi era, and what happened elsewhere. Because if we don't do that, then we're we're losing the history of the Nazi era. We're we're, we're minimizing and trivializing it. Um, and there's a tremendous German. There should be a tremendous German pride in their history and in their culture and even up to and including their German colonial era that um, that I think it's important to rescue. Yeah, great. Well, well said. Yeah, I sometimes wonder if maybe it's just because German sounds so guttural and sort of tough as a language, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just, it has sort of like an art hard edge to it. I wonder if, uh, you know, things people would be a little bit softer on the Germans now if, you know, if they you know spoke like a, a, a more mellifluous sounding language like French or, Portu yeah, well, don't or forget, Portuguese I mean, or something. The Italians, the Italians fell into the same fascist trap and they yeah. also tried to create a fascist colony in Ethiopia, yeah. but their language sounded beautiful, but right. uh, yeah. you know, so it can, it can happen. <laughs> All right. Well, again, uh, the book is in defense of German colonialism and how it's critics empowered Nazis, communists and the enemies of the West. Um, it, again, this is uh, <laughs> said when you told me you're writing this book. Uh, as I said at the, the start of the podcast, I was like, oh boy, um, you know, I you know little little uh, had read little on uh, you know German colonialism and you know from everything that I had heard, uh, you know Germans are very very bad that sort of thing. So it was nice to uh, have something that was a, a corrective uh, to a lot of that narrative. Um, you know, I highly, highly recommend the book to everybody out there. Oh, and uh, so do you have plans for, is this going to become like a series? Are you going to do like uh, the Belgians next or like the Portuguese? Or the... <laughs> I am doing the Belgians next, actually. Oh, really? Happens. Okay. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm doing a... Uh... I'm doing a long essay debunking Adam Housechild's King Leopold's Ghost, oh, okay. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. which will come out next year, and I suspect will become a book that will probably be called In Defense of the Congo Free State. Oh, so yeah, you yeah. thought you thought I was getting into part of German <laughs> colonialism. Wait till you read this one. Yeah, man, you're just a uh, uh, sucker for uh, punishment with this moth, stuff. But... Moth to the lamp. Yeah, yeah right, right, right. All right, well, uh, looking forward to that one. And again, uh, the book In Defense of German Colonialism. Uh, check it out and get yourself a copy uh, and give it a read. And again, uh, my guest, Dr. Bruce Gilley, uh, thank you very, very much for coming on again and uh, talking colonialism with me. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And if you uh, have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast or you know any questions or comments or whatnot, uh, you can reach out to me at tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. 
And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, again, our uh, little Twitter account for the uh, podcast, you can reach out to us there, uh, you know, any questions or comments or whatever. Uh, you know, give us a follow, send us a DM. Our Twitter handle is at illbooks, at I-L-L books. So check that out. And yeah, that's pretty much it. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll uh, see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye. Sky.